Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. The AASM recently released a health advisory for the appropriate use of melatonin in children. Here to tell us more about this is Dr. Abby Strang and Dr. Gotham Ganguly. Dr. Strang is a pediatric pulmonologist and sleep specialist at Nemours Children's Hospital in Wilmington, Delaware. Dr. Ganguly is a general adult neurologist who is in private practice and has a special interest in sleep and restorative brain function in neurodegenerative diseases. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. So why did the AASM put out this health advisory? So the reason for putting out the advisory was really twofold. The first is that there's been this really rapid rise in the use of melatonin in the U.S. over the past two decades. So if we look at the past two decades, especially since 2010, and then there was another sharp uptick in 2016 where um, many more consumers and patients were using melatonin. So that was sort of going on in the background. And then there was some alarming data that came out from the CDC on pediatric melatonin ingestions. Um, And the amount of ingestions actually rose by 500% from 2012 until 2021. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, sort of we're all, you know, in sleep medicine, um, we're seeing these patients coming in trying, you know, melatonin, buying it themselves. You can see it when you walk into pharmacies. So we're sort of seeing that going on um, and seeing the data with increased use. But then I'd say the final sort of what pushed us to put together this advisory um, was the the data on pediatric ingestions. Mm. So, So what does a health advisory actually say? One of the most important parts of the advisory is that really that parents... Um, and families should talk to healthcare professionals before giving supplements to children um, so that the dose, the timing, and the duration can be discussed with the healthcare professional. That's really one of the most important key components of the advisory. Also, Seema, we have to, um, this advisory also told us that there's a lot of misperception about mm. melatonin, uh, that it is safe, it's a health, uh, you know, in a, like a food product rather than a medication. And I think that's a misperception. And people have to be aware of that this can cause adverse effects, including interaction with other medications, mostly in adults. Well, and I think that's a really important point, right? I think that there's this assumption that if you can buy it without a prescription, therefore it must be safe. But, you know, the reality is that this is something that is, it is something that needs a prescription in Europe. You know, we just don't need a prescription for it in the U.S., Right. And the labeling, uh, excuse me, um, as a dietary supplement actually brings up more concerns about the dose that's labeled not being really what's in the, you know, the capsule or the, the, um, the tablet. Mm-hmm. And that has been a big concern for us in adult, as an adult neurologist, because many people are taking these medications thinking that this is okay to take it, but there's no way of knowing how much they're taking it because of the dose variability. And people, mostly with you know, cognitive impairment, it is a, it is a significant risk uh, for those people and that people have to be aware of. So Gotham, one of the things that I struggle with is advertising and packaging. You know, sometimes it'll say 
doctor recommended. So how should we be thinking about this? Yeah, it, it is doctor recommended for a specific group and right dose and right time. I mean, you know, every every medication it should be doctor recommended. But the problem is because being available over the counter and with no prescription at all, people think that it is okay to take it without actually a, actually any specific indication. So, Abby, if we distill it down, what does the health advisory tell us? So there's a couple, you know, important, very important points in the advisory. The one, as I mentioned before, is that um, parents should discuss melatonin use before giving it to children with their healthcare professional. The second is that Parents and families should be aware that melatonin is considered a dietary supplement. And as it's labeled a dietary supplement, there's more variability in the dosing. And that's something that um, our patients should really be aware of. So Abby, is there something then, I suppose you probably have to have some sort of safety information available for people who use melatonin if they have children in the home, either for people using it for themselves or for their children. I mean, what do you tell them? Right. That's important. We would recommend that melatonin is handled like any other medication. So it's kept out of reach for children and in um, childproof packaging so that um, it's not available, especially as melatonin is sometimes in flavors and in chewable tablets that um, children uh, may get to more. I did kind of wonder about that when my kids were little. We used to do fiber gummies and vitamin <laughs> gummies, and it would be like 10 gummies you know, before they would yeah. go to bed. So I can imagine that they would want to get their little fingers into melatonin too. So Abby, this is the other thing I, I've often wondered. You know, there are pediatricians who use a lot of melatonin. So do you think this is sort of, is this in response to parent demand? Or do you think pediatricians are are actively asking um, kids and parents about their sleep? I think it's coming both from the families as well as the pediatrician. Um, I, I think there's an increased emphasis on the importance of sleep health in daytime function in children, especially if there are daytime concerns related to um, behaviors or ADHD. I think pediatricians are doing a great job asking about sleep. Um, but I think that also, you know, there's direct to consumer and direct to patient marketing. So additionally, parents are coming in sort of um, either already having started the melatonin or asking their pediatricians about um, using melatonin. So I think one thing I appreciated about the health advisory is just at least drawing recognition and attention to this idea that, you know, it may not be a benign thing that we're doing, right? Because wasn't it just second to um, multivitamin overdose? Yes. And so that, you know, that was alarming to me when I saw that data. So, you know, Gotham, I think this is probably something you see in your clinic too. But when, when I see patients, a lot of them are already on melatonin. Correct. So how pervasive is this? I mean, Abby, when you see kids, are they already on melatonin by the time you see them? I would say that the majority of patients um, that I'm seeing for pediatric insomnia are coming in and 
and the families have already tried melatonin. And often, you know, they're they're going to the pharmacy or the supermarket and just sort of getting any brand off the shelf and kind of dosing it um, themselves. So I would say at this point, the majority of patients are, you know, especially if there's an insomnia concern, mm. um, they're just starting it really oftentimes the, by themselves or without guidance from a healthcare professional. So why do you think this is? I mean, does this what does this tell us about sleep in, in children? Do you think this is related to the pandemic? Is this something we saw before? So if we look at the data um, regarding melatonin use, it was it's been creeping up really since 2010 and pre-pandemic. But we know that the pandemic shifted schedules with, you know, different schedules and shifts towards virtual learning. And we saw many more consults for insomnia. Mm -hmm. And so since the pandemic, um, I think it's just really sort of exacerbated um, the issue. Um, And we did see data regarding pediatric uh, melatonin ingestions that rose significantly um, Mm -hmm. during the pandemic. Um, So when you look at the ingestion data from 2012 to to 2021, um, there was a 500% increase in pediatric melatonin ingestions, which is uh, really concerning. Seema, for adults, uh, as you know, that it's very hard for adults to get into into a sleep specialist. So their main access is the primary care doctors. And many of them don't have the time or the interest to really take care of insomnia. Mm. And although Studies after studies have shown that melatonin is a very, very poor and weak hypnotic, but people think that's the way to at least start off till you see a sleep specialist. So many times when we see patients, they're all different doses, different types, um, and different amounts uh, of uh, of, and when we go back and talk to the patients that, hey, this is not a very strong hypnotic. It's only, you know, a few points of, they, they sometimes look at us very startled that, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know? yeah. But you've hit on something really important, right? I think there's this public perception of what melatonin can do for us and for our sleep versus sort of the objective data, which of course is limited because these are not pharmaceutically driven, you know, funded trials, right? Right. And so, you know, do you do you think it's hard to get people off of melatonin? I mean, do you find them, you know, and I'm I'm interested in hearing both the adult and the pediatric view. So Gotham, when you have somebody that comes in on 20 of melatonin, is it really hard to get them off of it? Or are they kind of ready to let it go because it's not working anyway? Well, you have both 50-50. Some people, they say, we have tried different doses and nothing works. So that's the reason I'm... Uh, at my wits end to come and see you. Uh, on the other hand, some people say, no, it works great for me and I go to sleep and sleep like a baby, which is a <laughs> myth by itself. But, um, you know, so it's those people, it's very hard to get rid of. But then when we talk about that, hey, you are also on Coumadin and mm. or Warfarin and, you know, there's an interaction. When is the last time you went for your check with the INR? They look like, no, but this is a health supplement. It's not supposed to do anything other than provide me sleep. So there's a lot of, um, you know, education that we have to do during these visits and make sure that they understand that, first of all, it's a, you know, it's something that not to be taken it lightly. So what other things should we be counseling our patients on? You know, you mentioned the interaction with Coumadin. What else should we be worried about? There are some reports, you know, with uh, other medications like anti-seizure medications, or the medications which generally are 
um, you know, going through or metabolized to the liver, um, they seem to, if you're taking um, melatonin, there are some reports that medications like Plavix has a more half-life, which puts the patient at risk of having bleeding complications. Mm. Um, but these are all anecdotal reports. And um, But as per the WHO guidelines, these are things that we have to be aware of when we are giving melatonin. Right you know, in any elderly patients. So Abby, what about you? When you have um, a child on melatonin, is it hard to get them off of it? I mean, do you have resistance either from the parent or the child? I would say, as Gotham said, it can go either way. So we have patients who come in and they say, you know, I've tried melatonin, sometimes at alarmingly high doses, and, you know, it's not working. And then we go through and, you know, we really look at all of the other aspects of their sleep and look at other ways to manage um, the insomnia. And those patients are easier to get off because, you know, they're ready to try something new. On the flip side, we have patients who come in and, you know, they they feel that the melatonin is helping. Um, and so in those patients, um, you know, we we work to also take a good sleep history and to determine is there an appropriate time um, that the medication could be tapered or stopped or are there, um, you know, different ways um, that we can come up with a plan to eventually stop the melatonin if if we're able to. So you know what I kind of worry about, and, and I don't know if this is me sort of overthinking this or not, but are we are we teaching our kids that they need to take something in order to fall asleep, right? Instead of like you talked about, instead of addressing, you know, behaviors and routine. Exactly. That's one of my um, biggest concerns with the highly pervasive use of melatonin. Um, you know, is it safe in the short term? Probably. Is it necessary? Probably not, because we know that many sleep disturbances, um, difficulties with falling asleep, insomnia in children, most of the time um, can be treated with behavioral changes, changes in schedule, um, and with without, you know, a medication or supplement. So even if it's a benign medication, are we really sending the wrong message to a young child, um, you know, that you need a medication or you need, I need my pill to fall asleep? Is that really the right uh, message that we want to send? Let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about appropriate use of melatonin. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Learn more about building a successful career in sleep research through the AASM Foundation's Young Investigators Research Forum. This training program provides opportunities for early career investigators to understand how to secure sleep research funding. Learn more and apply today at foundation.aasm.org YIRF. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. We're talking with Dr. Abby Strang and Dr. Gotham Ganguly about melatonin use. Abby, remind me of what the data actually says about melatonin use in children and in what subset of our pediatric population might it be appropriate for sleep onset insomnia, I mean. So there are 
um, are a limited number of studies in in pediatrics, but in certain with in children with certain um, conditions such as autism spectrum disorder and ADHD, there's some limited evidence that melatonin may improve time to fall asleep and may Im- improve um, sleep duration. Mm. But the first line therapy is still to rule out uh, coexisting medical conditions, to assess other medications that the patients are, are taking, and to um, work on behavioral changes um, and schedule changes with the family if there are concerns in those areas. Um, but the the use of melatonin in you know, patients who do not have a neurologic or developmental disorders is really lacking. Mm. Um, but people have sort of extrapolated from, you know, studies with children with, with autism um, and used it more widely in pediatric patients. Is the dosage for melatonin in children, is it similar to, you know, what we think of as adult dosing? I mean, how do you dose melatonin in, in children? So for children um, in general, children who do not have autism or ADHD, um, for for children who are typically developing without a developmental disorder, there really are not clear um, mm. studies that give us guidelines. Um, we'll extrapolate from some of the the, the studies in children with. Um, autism spectrum disorder and typically try to use the lowest dose um, or around one to three milligrams and typically use it 30 to 60 minutes before bedtime for a hypnotic effect. Mm, That's helpful. So aside from, you know, drug-drug interactions, what's the downside? Like, why are we worried about this? Aside, you know, and, and and I hear what you're saying about the overdose, right? But in just sort of the general population outside of overdose, what is the downside of using melatonin? Well, well, first of all, it's not a great medication as a hypnotic. That's number one. I mean, if you look at the studies in adults, they have gone down, the sleep onset latency have gone down by like a few minutes, like mm. four to seven. The total sleep time increases by 15 to 20 minutes. Um, and the sleep efficiency is somewhere around two to five percent. So it's not a great impact on hypnotics. But on the other hand, in specific populations, like for example, in patients with cognitive impairment and dementia, mm. um, there's a, uh, the use of melatonin may cause other issues like mood disorders, like depression, like next day um, psychomotor slowing. And all of these has a big impact on people who have a very uh, low cognitive reserve. So Gotham, when is it appropriate to use melatonin in adults? So is there a certain patient group or diagnosis? Which indication? I think the most uh, data that we have is in the people with uh, REM behavior disorder mm-hmm. or RBD. Um, because although uh, you know this is very prevalent in, in people with um, synucleonopathies like Parkinson's, uh, multisystem atrophy, um, this medication is in the same class group as clonazepam, which is another medication that we use for RVD. The good thing about melatonin is that, first of all, anecdotally, uh, anecdotally I can tell you that it works. Um, and the range is between 3 to 12. Um, but this has better safety profile in the patients with Parkinson's where I cannot use a clonazepam because it's a problem with gait and balance and falls. Um, so that's the that group of patient has been served the best. The other people that we have found melatonin to be effective is people with uh, circadian rhythm disorders of sleep. 
um, in mostly in people with delayed sleep phase uh, syndrome or non 24 hour um, uh, entrainment problem uh, patients. So, Abby, how do you use melatonin in your pediatric patients? So, I will use it in children who have um, difficulties with um, insomnia, with difficulties with sleep onset, especially children who have um, certain disorders such as autism spectrum disorder and ADHD. And if there are children who are using melatonin or if parents are interested in a trial of melatonin um, after we have used, you know, behavioral techniques and other strategies in children who do not have um, other disorders, we'll usually start with a hypnotic dose, a low dose of one to three milligrams, about 30 to 60 minutes before bedtime um, for a short period and then try to wean them off as able. Mm, so what's a short period? Within about three months when we're seeing them back in sleep clinic for follow-up, we'll address how the patient is doing. Mm. Um, and at that point, would attempt um, a wean or a trial off of the medication or of melatonin. So let's talk a little bit specifically about like delayed sleep phase syndrome. So how should we be thinking about using melatonin for this, Gotham? So generally, uh, you know, the, this disorder is mostly prevalent in young adolescents, college-growing kids, and many of them, they have their whole sleep pushed towards towards the end of the night, like two or three o'clock in the morning. And most of the recommendations are that you can start melatonin at a, at a smaller dose, somewhere around 0.5 to 3 milligrams, five to six hours before their bedtime. Uh, that tends to help you advance the sleep phase. Um, there's, uh, and, but between melatonin and light therapy, light therapy always trumps melatonin because that seems to have a bigger shift mm-hmm. um, in, in our um, phase response curve than melatonin. Gotham, I love the idea of using both light and melatonin. And, you know, there are tons of apps that are available. I mean, do you use any of these to help patients, you know, to help guide your patients who maybe travel or if they're just trying to advance their sleep phase? Yeah, there are a lot of apps and most of the patients show me the apps. Actually. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, I, and I'm surprised that there's so many of them. Uh, but um, yes, they, they use it and mostly in people who are traveling and they want to be um, on top of their game and wherever they are going. For example, at a meeting they have to attend after, you know, 12 hours of travel. They are all using these apps. And as long as it works, I always follow that. I said, as long as it works, it's, it's the best for you. Um, Do you I know what have... I loved seeing is a few years ago, those um, those goggles. Yes. I forget. It was like a basketball team or something. Yes. They had pictures of them all wearing these goggles on, on a long flight, like on the plane. I thought that was great. I love that people are embracing the importance of sleep, you know, sleep quality and, and timing and duration. And so to see that with like a basketball team, I thought was fantastic. Well, everyone's trying to optimize their performance, mm-hmm. you know, so mm-hmm. they they understand. I think the good thing about uh, things now is that people understand sleep is an important factor in optimizing your day-to-day functioning. And, and you're exactly right. 
So then what about the people who have like a non-24? Is there a role for melatonin to treat? Yes. Yes. So how do we do it? So generally, um, you know, the non-24, you pick up a time like an hour before bedtime, for example, between eight to nine o'clock, and then you give the same dose every day to align their uh, circadian rhythm. Um, And they say that, you know, this helps them to shift um, the, their phase response curve to that, that they are aligned at least. Because for non-24, the light is not present to cue their brain of what exactly we, where we are in the day-to-day functioning. And the melatonin helps them to give them the chemical clue that this is where the sleep should start. So what about non-24 hour in somebody who still has sight? I've, I've seen this once, and it was somebody who um, was big into gaming and never went outside. I think there, there's no strong recommendation for medications for that. I think the recommendation is to be out in the sunlight. In the light, and, yeah. And, and <laughs> because if you, if you can see, I mean, light is your be- best side giver. So mm-hmm. in a way, you would have that rather than taking a medication and trying to cure your brain that this is night, this is day. Um, so I think the recommend, there's no specific recommendation uh, of that. I was going to say, just when you're describing um, your patient with, with gaming and, and sunlight perception, it it brings up the, the point that um, even if you're using melatonin for circadian rhythm disorders, you're also going to want to talk to your patients about other factors that are affecting their circadian rhythm. So if you have you know a teenager who has delayed sleep phase, just using melatonin at circadian dosing is not going to be, you know, the be all end all. You really have to talk to them about all of those other factors related to electronics and their light and their cell phone um, and all the other factors that affect their circadian rhythm. That is such an important point, right? It's not just a pill at a certain time. It's embracing this whole idea of you need light and you need to be off your device. And, you know, there's so many components um, to that. So is there a role for melatonin for the patients with advanced sleep phase syndrome? Actually, there is, but it's practically impossible because what you're trying to do is trying to give someone who wakes up around two or three or four o'clock in the morning to give them the melatonin to actually delay their sleep phase. Uh, But unfortunately, that can have some hangover and that can cause more problems in the uh, in the in the daytime functioning. So for advanced sleep phase, the best thing is to give the light, the evening light, so to delay their delay their onset of sleep. Uh, that would be a better option than taking melatonin at three or four or cl- five o'clock in the morning to and then get the side effects of it. I will admit light is my favorite sleep intervention. I think it's kind of fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> and And that is the strongest one out of all the all the things which we have. So help me understand, Abby, you, you mentioned circadian dosing. So what does that mean? And, and are you talking about in pediatric population? Is that sort of the one to three milligrams you mentioned earlier? Um, no, starting at, at lower doses, sort of as Gotham mentioned, using the, the low dose, mm-hmm. um, like 0.5 milligrams um, and using it, for example, for delayed sleep phase syndrome, um, earlier prior to sleep onset, so several hours before. Um, The hard part, though, is then 
encouraging all of those behaviors, you know, to eliminate excessive light exposure um, in the evening. Mm hmm. Yeah, Kathy Goldstein taught me that years ago, that really small dose, like 0.5, two or three hours before bedtime is more specific for that receptor. And I thought that was really fantastic yes. advice. Mm -hmm. And what I typically will recommend is, um, you know, minimal use of electronics and trying to be in a, a, a dark, you know, or a dimly lit cool room in the evening to really maximize the effect and to really try to shift um, as much as possible. So Gotham, you talked a little bit about RBD and you kind of mentioned doses three to 12 milligrams. Um, and I I had a gentleman, I think that was seen out at the Mayo Clinic. I live kind of, you know, the Mayo Clinic's like four hours away. So it's not, you know, we have a lot of patients that wind up going to the Mayo Clinic um, and they really push the dose, you know, 18 to 20 milligrams for some patients. Have you seen that? Yes, we have seen that, but I mean, I just wanted to make sure that we are following the guidelines uh, because Mayo Clinic is Mayo Clinic, as you know. <laughs> uh, you know, so so unfortunately, unfortunately, in the community, we have to be careful about you know uh, making sure that we follow what the guidelines say. Uh, and the second problem I have is you don't know that you're not getting always the USP and the GMP for mm -hmm. these medications, so you don't know. Uh, you know, does 20, min, 20 milligrams mean 20 or is it like 30 or 27? You know, so it's it becomes very, very uh, difficult then to gauge what exactly the patient is taking. And you're referring to that that trial, right? That examined yes. the different um, melatonin and they found that 25% of the ones they tested had serotonin right. and that there was significant variability in the concentration of melatonin in the bottle compared to the label. Yeah, and so, yeah I agree with you. Somewhere around, they say that there's a 478% increase. Yes. I mean, like, how would you have a 478%? Like, that's beyond my imagination <laughs> that you can have a medication, <laughs> which is like 500% more than what it's supposed to be. Like, um, so it, it, it becomes very, um, you know, like a gray area. And uh, that's the reason I said, but you can push it higher. And and that's the other part I, I appreciated about the advisory is they're very clear that, you know, this is a hormone. Yes. And I think that probably would catch a lot of people off guard. I agree. I agree. And that brings up another concern related to long-term use in pediatrics um, yep. that we really don't know how taking a hormone, um, a supplemental hormone, you know, for every night for many years affects other um other other systems mm -hmm. how it affects children going through puberty. Uh, we just don't have long term data, and that's why you know we we recommend sort of tapering as able and using really only when indicated. Yeah, and I think it is right. You have that initial impetus to use it, like as a parent, that oh my gosh, my kid just needs to sleep, and maybe I'll use this for a week, and then you know a week becomes two weeks, becomes a month, becomes three months, and then all of a sudden their kids, you know, after bath time are getting their melatonin as part of their routine, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And so I, what you've said is really important. That it is important to have an assessment of their sleep and to work with some sort of healthcare person, whether it's your primary or a sleep person. Um, to, you know, get beyond this idea of just using melatonin, you know, as this temporary fix. Yeah, I think there's a perception sort of that, um, you know, 
parents should be able to get their children to sleep. If there's a problem, maybe it's something they're doing wrong. And we really want to encourage our parents to talk to their healthcare you know, team, talk to their primary care, come to sleep clinic so that we can help you. Mm-hmm. Um, we can work through, um, you know, diagnosing whether there's a primary sleep disorder, ruling that out, looking at the schedule, and that we can really give you the appropriate treatment strategy. You know, if you're going to the store and, you know, getting a big kind of jar of melatonin, it's almost like if you have any type of infection or something, just treating with only one antibiotic, you know, just um, you're sort of treating inappropriately and not really addressing the primary problem. So Mm -hmm. if we can encourage um, parents and families to come to us as healthcare professionals, we can really tease through um, the challenges and give the most effective treatment strategies. What a great analogy. So Abby, as a sleep community, what do we need to do moving forward to further research in this area? So right now, um, we don't have any FDA approved treatments for pediatric insomnia. Um, we, we're really, you know, lacking, um, good studies uh, to to determine what are the most appropriate treatments in children who have certain healthcare conditions and certain sleep disorders, but also in typically developing children. Mm. Um, so encouraging um, you know research in pediatric sleep and especially pediatric insomnia is important. Gotham, how about you? What do we need to do as a sleep community? I think what Abby said was pretty uh, you know on the spot. Um, we do need some more studies and we need to know this. Um, but again, adult population is a little different than pediatrics because of the long-term consequences of this hormone uh, on young kids. But we know that many of the elderly population, mostly the people with dementia, mm. uh, we should not be using melatonin on them on a routine basis until they have been fully evaluated and all the plausible factors for insomnia, including, you know, other disorders like periodic limb movements of sleep, sleep apnea has been uh, evaluated and completely taken care of. So Abby, any final thoughts? So um, one point to mention is that sales of melatonin in the U.S. in 2020 were at over $800 million. And so I think this is just... (laughs) You know, this issue um, that we're talking about today is really just an indication that, um, you know, there are many Americans who are struggling with sleep. We can help them um, and encouraging uh, people to come to sleep clinic, to sleep, to see their sleep professionals and to talk about these issues with their primary care and primary health care team is really important. And I think the advisory, you know, puts this out in a way that is patient friendly and easy to, to digest. And so um, I hope that people will will point their patients in the direction of the advisory. That's a lot of money. Holy smokes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gotham, how about you? Any final thoughts? I think uh, I have to say that melatonin is a poor hypnotic and it works for some people. But if it's not working, um, you know, you should seek help. And uh, melatonin works in the right patient with the right dose and then the right time. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you both so much for joining us today and providing really helpful insights into the appropriate use of melatonin in both children and adults. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. 
For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla, encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.